0: We want to give a special welcome back to everybody who went on our Mexico trip. If you went on our Mexico trip, why don't you stand up? Come on, stand up. If you just got back from Mexico, there we go. Stay. I'm going to get you to stay standing for a second here. Uh, our, our Mexico team built seven seven houses, right? And our uh, Uh, And SunWest just celebrated doing its 20th year, and we've built over 100 houses in the Tijuana area in Mexico over the last 20 years, uh, thanks to teams like this. So thank you guys for going down. Uh, That's awesome. I'm going to invite, actually, stay standing. I'm going to invite all of you guys to stand with me. I'm going to invite you to stand as we read uh, the Word of God this morning, if you're able. Yeah, stand up. hear lots of moaning. You know, a a lot of churches stand every time they read the Word of God together. So, you know, once in a while isn't that that bad. Uh, It's it's Palm Sunday this Sunday. Uh, It's the the Sunday in which the church celebrates uh, the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem uh, on his way to the cross. And I just want to read together uh, the passage out of Matthew 21. It says, as Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem. They came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take it. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, let, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king. Everybody say king. king. Your king is coming to you. He is humble riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt and and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead ahead of him and other cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the son of David Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Bless the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you for what you've already done, what you've already, how you've already met us as we have come before you in worship. And Lord, we just ask that you would speak uh, to us now about the way that your kingdom comes. And Lord, we recognize that you're a king that came in a way unexpected. Uh, Lord, will we be open to your unexpected coming even today? In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. We're continuing our series this morning called TGIF, which stands for. Thank God it's Frank. Thank God it's Frank. Coming from Frank, yeah. <laughs> Frank, we do thank God for you. Um, But the acronym actually stands for Thank God It's Friday, Recovering the Scandal of the Cross. I believe that the cross is more scandalous, more rich, more deep than we often give it credit for. It becomes such a familiar story in the church uh, that we often lose sight of how how far-reaching the impact of the cross has. It's not just an event that happened 2,000 years ago. It's an event that actually impacts the way we live today. Christians acknowledge that through the cross we receive salvation. Salvation, the Greek word um, being sozo, which means to be healed, to be delivered, to be rescued, to be made whole. And Paul uses this word not just as something that has happened, that we've been saved, although he uses it in that way too. He used it also in a way that we're being saved and also in a way that says we're eventually going to be saved. That all three of these things have happened, are happening, and are going to happen, And it's at the place on the cross that Paul has, it's that's where he gets his confidence in the victory of Christ. So this morning we want to look more in depth at the cross. If I can get technology to work here. There we go. So I want you to stare at the screen, stare at the dots in the middle of the screen. Can everybody stare at the dot? You make sure you're staring at it, focusing on the black dot. And when the picture changes, I want you to stay focused on the black dot. Everybody's staring at the black dot? Mm-hmm. Now look away from the black dot. Whoa! <laughs> Someone just had a cool experience right there. Awesome. Carter loved it. Carter loved it. Did anybody else get that? Okay, Carter was excited. You guys want to do it over time? Okay, let's, uh, let me see. Let's let's try it here. Um, you're, You're asking me to, okay, stare at the black dot. Takes about 15 seconds. Stay focused on it. Even while the picture changes, stay focused on the black dot. Wait for it. Now look away? Oh! Man. That's crazy. So, uh, I've been watching the... My oldest son has been getting into these brain games, uh, this TV show on Netflix, and and he keeps showing me all these games uh, that play with your brain. And when you stare at the same color for a long time, your photoreceptors, the cells responsible... For that color, get tired, and when it flips back to black and white, your cells don't put in the proper way, those cells. And so your brain starts adding colors, the colors that it thinks are there or should be there. Your brain is presenting objects to you with the colors it thinks that should be there. To your brain, it's more important to have a consistent, reliable experience of the colors in your world than to see colors for what they really are. Let me show you another example. If you look at the if you look at the uh, screen here, what what colors do you see there? Yeah, shout them out. Yeah, okay. Red, orange, white, black, yellow. What if I were to tell you that there's only two colors in this picture? Red and red and gray. It's true. It's true. Gray has the full spectrum of colors within gray and your mind actually attributes colors to the gray that it thinks ought to be there. Let me show you the real picture. Red and gray. See, your mind is more interested in reaffirming what it already knows than seeing things for the way it actually is. When we look at the cross, often we become more interested in reaffirming what we already believe, what we already know, than realizing the scandal that it is. The scandal of the cross, it's not just that God sent some man to earth, it's that God Himself, as we've been talking about in the series, put on flesh, came in the form of a human, and on the cross, it's actually the Creator Himself, God Himself hanging on the cross. That's part of the scandal. The cross was an event that was intended to help us see everything in a new way. Yet just like our eye test, we often want to see things in a consistent, reliable way, and we miss the true color and the spectrum of the cross. Emil Durkheim, a guy who lived at the, in the mid-19th century, early 20th century, he wanted to understand where people got their concepts of God from. And so he, he traveled the world, and everywhere he went, there was a belief in God. All cultures had some kind of belief in God. He couldn't find a society that didn't believe in God. But he found that the way one culture defined God changed as he went from culture to culture. So he went to Africa, he went to Latin America, Asia, Canada, United States, and everywhere he went, he realized that God was defined in a different way. And so he was intrigued by this, and he started analyzing a group of Aboriginal people outside of Australia outside of Australia, and also um, some of the first nations in North America. And he realized a few things. Stage one, that people developed traits and values that made them unique. So he would come to Calgary and he'd say, Calgarians have traits and values, things about them that make them a unique people and make them unique in comparison to the rest of the people on earth. Canadians have unique values, unique things Traits, And the second thing he observed was that in these aboriginal groups, that the group would come up with an animal to represent the characteristics of that tribe. Groups would come up with an animal to represent the unique characteristics, traits of that tribe. And this is what they called a totem. You guys are familiar with totems? Okay. If you were to have a totem, what would your totem what, what would what would your totem have on it? You don't know to answer that question. So a totem, something that represents you. So if a if a tribe was strong, it might have an ox. Or if it was wise, maybe an owl. Or if it was sly, maybe a fox. If it was swift, maybe a deer. But little by little, this is the third thing, this third stage that Durkheim notices that little by little people end up worshiping the animal, worshiping the totem. And this was his suggestion that if the animal is nothing more than a symbolic representation of their traits and values, people are actually just worshiping themselves. Religion is nothing more than a group of people worshiping themselves, projecting their own traits and values onto something else and reaffirming who they already are. So here's the simple question I want to ask this morning. Is has the cross become a totem? Has the cross become a totem? Has the cross become the place where we actually project our own beliefs, our own values, our own characteristics onto God. The philosopher Voltaire said, if God has made us in his image, we have returned him the favor. Are we projecting projecting our own image, our own values onto the cross? Or is the cross projecting the character of God onto us? Significantly different. Has the cross become our totem, or are we allowing the cross to make us God's totem? I started this series with talking about how God created us to be his image bearers, and the, word, the Greek word that we talked about that meant that was what? Akon. that's where we get the word icon from. That we were originally created, humanity was originally created to reflect God, to represent God, the characteristics of God, the traits of God, to rule for God in this creation that is different than the rest of creation. We were created to represent him to one another and in creation. And when God created man, he created him in right relationship with him. When God created man, he created him in right relationship with other humans, created Man with the, in right relationship with himself, secure in his, their identity as an image-bearer, as a child of God, and also in right relationship with the created world. But something went sideways, and we've talked about this the last few weeks, and I won't go through it again. But when we turned our backs on God, we broke that relationship between us and him, between each other. We, we have an identity crisis because we don't know who we are, and we've actually forfeited our vocation to steward the creation the way that God's asked us to steward it. I've titled the sermon, Jesus the Failure. And we don't often think of Jesus that way, someone that experienced failure. We're not conditioned to think that way. We think Jesus succeeds in everything. And obviously I'm saying that with a big tongue in cheek, but Jesus died an apparent failure in the eyes of the people that he was with. And we fast forward to Easter Sunday because we know the end of the story, but we, we, we fail to grasp the scandal and the tension that is there within the, East, with, within the passion narrative. And Lent, the period leading up to Easter, is actually a, a time of putting on the brace and recognizing the way that Jesus came. And on Palm Sunday, I think it's appropriate that we think about the way that Jesus came. He didn't come like a king, like we expected a king to come, on his horses, and his chariot, with his armies. He came humbly, on a colt, on a donkey. Jesus did what he did not by success, but by dying as a failure. But in the Western world, we love success. We love success. And so we try and project that onto the cross, and we say, you know, this was a success. But faithfulness often looks like failure, at least until Easter. Right? Faithfulness can look like failure until Easter. We're called to faithfulness. It's what happens on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, that makes us rethink Good Friday. But Easter doesn't mean Good Friday didn't happen, that it wasn't there, that it wasn't experienced in real time by Jesus Christ. If we use Easter to obliterate Good Friday rather than illuminate Good Friday, we end up with a theology of success, and that becomes an idol. Let me say that last line again. If we use Easter to obliterate Good Friday rather than illuminate Good Friday, we end up with the theology of success, which is an idol. So if we rethink the Jesus story, there's this guy, and he was a peasant, born in a poor family, somewhat of a preacher poet. He worked an honest living with his dad, learning the trades of a carpenter, but around the age of 30, he began to preach and announce that the reign of God was coming among men, that the rule of God, and he used the language, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And this God that he described was one of peace. He was bringing a peaceful kingdom. He also had a gift for working miracles, especially healing the sick. This, this caused him to gain a great following. People became infatuated with him. They, they wanted him to work miracles. They wanted to see him you know, heal that disease, to make the lame man walk. And they would come and they would listen to him and, and they would hang on his words and they noticed that he, he spoke and he taught with someone with authority. And so crowds gathered. People started to follow him. He announced that God was breaking in the breaking into the world. And it wasn't just going to happen someday, but it was actually happening right before the very eyes. He established this new kind of government, this government of love, this government of peace. And so a movement began, and people began following him, thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of followers. You know, there were, there were people that were waiting for God's kingdom to come, and there was this group of zealots that thought that the kingdom would come through force. And they were intrigued by this Jesus, this radical person that was announcing this new kingdom. There were Essenes, this group of Jewish people that thought that God's kingdom would come by escaping the world, and so they, were, they escaped, and, and they were intrigued by this man who didn't quite fit into the world. He didn't quite align with the religious system or the Romans, and so they were intrigued by him. They were The Pharisees, this group of religious leaders, these guys that were more interested, or they they were completely interested in the holiness and the purity of God's people were intrigued by Jesus. He knew his scriptures. He lived in a way that was curious, even though they couldn't quite figure him out. And so he, he caught the attention of all sorts of people looking for a revolution, People were following him. And then he started saying things that were controversial. And his popularity began to lessen. And the more time went on, the more controversial he kind of became, and he lost most of his followers. The popularity he had in his glory days was lost. Officials became increasingly concerned about what this guy was going to say. Finally, this guy comes into the capital city we just read about in Palm Sunday. And people yelling, Hosanna, they're rallying support. They, you know, they thought, this is the king, this is the moment. He was arrested. And after that, his remaining followers deserted him. This wasn't the way the kingdom was actually supposed to come about, was it? This miracle worker, this, this king, this, this leader, this revolutionary, he just kind of Went to the cross. His followers deserted him. He was convicted at the hands of Caiaphas, the high priest, in front of the religious court, for heresy, for blasphemy. He was convicted in the criminal court at the hands of Pilate for treason and was sentenced to execution. At his execution, all of his followers, out of all of his followers, there was only one disciple that was left, and his mom. At least he had his mom. There's a, couple, there's a handful of other there, women there with him as well. And among his last words were these, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was 33. That's the story of Good Friday. The story to Calvary. And as we evaluate the life of Jesus at sundown on Good Friday, what do we have? We have a promising life that ended in Failure. We had people that were captivated by the image and the imagination of this kingdom revolution who were disappointed when their leader and their king was hanging on a cross. Jesus was dead and was buried and what did he leave behind? Nothing. Jesus didn't write anything. He didn't build anything. The movement he started had fizzled out by that point. One of his closest disciples betrayed him and his chief disciple denied him. This is what happened on Good Friday. And on his way to the cross, Jesus encounters these powerful men in culture, these successful men. There's Caiaphas, the high priest, completely concerned with, with religious observance and holiness and purity. He encamp- and this, is, this was the avenue in which Caiaphas had influence, calling people to this holy living. Then we have Pontius Pilate, this Roman governor, a man of power and influence on behalf of Rome, a political leader. We have Herod, this puppet king, this Jewish king that was actually, uh, was placed there by the Romans, and he had great wealth, and some say he even had greater wealth than Caesar, this economic power that was positioned in leadership. And Pilate, in his interactions with Jesus, is completely puzzled by this man. He can't figure him out. And Jesus responds to him and says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. People were expecting this kingdom to this king to come and establish a kingdom in the way of the world. And we read this verse and it says, My kingdom is not of this world, but this this word uh that we translate of, it can be actually a bit deceptive. It's from the Greek word ek. Say ek. Like you're gonna spit. Yeah, something like that. Because when we read it simply as of, we read it this way, that we read the kingdom of God is somewhere else. It's not of this world. The faulty thinking becomes that the goal for God is to get us somewhere else. My kingdom somewhere else, and so my goal is actually to save you and get you somewhere else. But ek literally means from or out of. My kingdom does not come from this world. And when Jesus is referring to the world, he's referring to the systems and the way of the world. The way that one gains power and influence in the world is not the way that my kingdom comes. The kingdom of God actually comes in a different way. It's coming into this world from another. His power and his influence, is rule, is not like those that rule in this world. The kingdom of God, the reign of God, operates by a completely different system than this world. Let me ask you a question. Where is God on Good Friday? Is he standing with Caiaphas, seeking influence by religious power, requiring someone to blame and answer for guilt? Is he standing with Pilate, seeking influence by political power, demanding death to satisfy the crowds? As we read in Mark 15, 15, Pilate, it says, to pacify the crowd Pilate ordered Jesus flogged and turned him over to be crucified. Pilate gets caught in a political game of influence. Is that where, Jesus, is that where God is on Good Friday? Is he standing with Herod, seeking influence by popularity, by wealth, insecure in his own, his own power, getting rid of anyone or anything that threatens his position? And what's, what's ironic on Good Friday... That we read in Luke 23 verse 12. This is just a side note. It says that Herod and Pilate who had been enemies before became friends on that day. They gained influence and unity by identifying a common enemy. Does God align himself with them? Identifying enemies in order to get people to rally and get behind him. Creating a false sense of unity. Where is God on Good Friday? You should know the answer. By now, God is hanging on the cross. He's not standing with Caiaphas or Pilate or Herod. His kingdom is coming in a wholly different way. Jesus extent, How did he extend his power and his might and his influence? How did Jesus become so captivating? How did Jesus conquer the powers of hell and the devil? How did Jesus secure a throne that will last for all eternity? Not by religious, political, or economic scapegoating, but through the cross. One of my favorite verses or sections of Scripture in all, in all of Scripture, maybe second to John chapter 1, is Philippians 2. And if you've been around Sunrise long enough, you probably, you probably get a feel for what my favorite verses are because they come up all the time, don't they? I always seem to end up in John 1 or Philippians 2 in some way. Um, But Philippians 2 says this. It says, Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore... God he elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Powerful verse in terms of how we understand what God is doing through Jesus. We read this often as, you know, there was God and then God stopped being God for a little bit. And then after the cross, he came back as God. God was in his glory. God gave up his glory. And then he was resurrected and he picked up his glory again. Can I suggest to you that that's actually a pagan understanding of God? In Islam, there's a belief that glory cannot suffer. Suffering is opposite to glory. That's why the cross is so scandalous. That's why the Muslim faith struggles with their understanding of Jesus. Because we actually proclaim the scandalous idea that glory, that God himself suffers. Jesus as God is so outrageous. But one of the major themes in the, In the Gospel of John, John's telling of the Jesus story is that one of the themes in John is the glory glory of God. The glory of God. He talks about the glory of God over and over again. And when he's referring to the glory of God, what's the moment he's referring to? The resurrection? Nope. The cross. In the Gospel of John, the place where we see God in all of his glory is on the cross. At the moment where God is hanging on the cross. And we know that Jesus didn't stop being God, in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is the exact representation of God. Jurgen Moltmann, really smart guy, says this. He says, when the crucified Jesus is called the image of the invisible God, the meaning is that this is God and God is like this. This that I'm referring to is in this word in Philippians 2. where our translation says he gave up his divine privileges. Do you know what word this is in the Greek? The word is kenosis. Can you say kenosis? So though he was God, he did not think of equality of God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privilege. He responded with kenosis. And the word kenosis means pouring out or emptying, pouring out or emptying. And so sometimes in our mishandling of this word, like I said, Jesus, God had glory, he gave up his glory, and then he took it back up again at the resurrection. That, that is not actually what we're seeing here in the word kenosis. You know, yesterday I, was, I went into the fridge, and uh, we, have, we had this big thing of pickles. If you went to Mexico, you guys have a love for pickles, don't you? Did, did you guys have pickles this year? Oh my goodness. That is a shame. I I fell in love with pickles in Mexico. I don't know. You know something about those dirty hands that all are, are all reaching into the jar at the same time and you're sharing pickles together. Praying before you eat it that you wouldn't come down with something. Anyways, I went into the fridge yesterday. I took out this I took out a jar of pickles. And um and it's kind of like this, not pre, I don't know if, if you call them made pickles, pre-pickled pickles, uh, but, uh, but it's, it's a container that allows us to pickle our pickles, is that right? Uh, to pickle our own pickles. And I didn't know it, but it's got this handle on it, in which it holds the pickles, and I, and I went and I grabbed the handle to, to take it out of the fridge. Uh, but that's, this handle is actually not connected to anything. And the whole jar of pickles and vinegar and garlic and all that stuff splashed all over our kitchen, all over our counters. Uh, my wife was stoked. Uh, and there's this fragrance in our kitchen of vinegar and pickles and garlic, and I was... They didn't seem that appetizing in the moment, i got to be honest. This idea of something being completely poured out, completely emptied, completely seen for what it is, smelt for what it is, the fragrance that was in that jar is now released and it filled their entire house. This is the idea of Kenosis. What we, have, what we have in this canonic, if I can use it in the adjective form, this canonic love of God is not that Jesus stopped being God. It's that on the cross, we see God acting in a way that is truly God. That he's emptied himself, that he's, he's let himself completely out. And that we see this vulnerable, crucified God. And we think we've fallen into the lie that we can bypass this inconvenient part of the, the gospel story and jump right to Resurrection Sunday. This canonic love is the essence of what God is like. As First John tells us, that God is love. And Resurrection Sunday is proof that at the end of the day, it is kenotic love, not violence, not power, not politics, not money, that will have the last word. If we want to be a part of the kingdom of God, to do something that has everlasting impact and influence, we don't rely on power or politics or money. We rely on kenotic love. And so some of us get a glimpse of this when we read Philippians 2, that, you know, God is doing something incredible here. And we think, that's nice. That's nice for God. It's nice that God did that for me. That God would completely empty himself, take on the nature of a servant, take the place of a criminal on the cross, that he would take my place as a, as a substitute, as we've talked about. But then we get the Resurrection Sunday, and, and, and the thinking goes like this. Jesus suffered so that I don't have to. Jesus experienced the cross so that I don't have to. And in that moment, we are in danger of creating a totem out of the cross. Why? Because we have a value of success in our culture, a value to be powerful, a value to be popular, a value to be wealthy. And instead of seeing the cross for the scandalous thing it is, we see the cross as a means to getting what we actually want. We may have more in common with Caiaphas, Pilate, or Herod when we treat Jesus simply as a scapegoat to get what we want. Because what does Philippians 2 actually say? I left out the first part of the whole thing. It says this. You must have the same attitude... That Christ Jesus had this is the whole thing that Paul is saying so you know what God is like this canonic love the self-emptying thing the scandalous the scandalous king that you've actually decided to follow he didn't just do that so that you could get on with what you really want he actually did that so you would follow him the victory of the cross is only implemented through the means of the cross. The victory of the cross is only implemented through the means of the cross. Suffering was the means of its victory. Suffering is also the means of its implementation. In Acts 1 verse 8, there's a whole bunch of these new Jesus followers that are joining the revolution. and Jesus says, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the the earth. Do you guys know what the word is for witnesses in that passage? You'll be my witnesses. It's, the Greek word there is marturos. What, what word does that sound like? Martyr. You'll be my witnesses. You'll, that's where we get the word martyr from. How did the word martyr, which means witnesses, come to mean somebody dying for their faith? It's because when the followers of Jesus lived in a canonic way, self-giving, self-sacrificing, willing to lay down their very own lives for others, people saw that as the purest witness to the cross. People saw it as the purest testimony for how God's kingdom comes. The purest witness that Jesus was and is king. And so we adapted that word martyr And, and we've used it to describe someone who's given their life for Jesus. When the, S, the, the original word was actually someone that witnesses to who Jesus is. In 1 John three sixteen, it says, this is how we know what love is, that Christ laid down his life for us, so we must lay down our lives. So why is this important? I believe that if we don't see Jesus as God hanging on the cross, we are in danger of making the cross a totem. We are in danger of just projecting what we want onto the cross and seeing the cross as the means to get what we want, instead of seeing a God revealing himself in canonic love saying, do the same. I'm doing a new thing. My kingdom, my authority, this everlasting Kingdom that I'm putting in place doesn't come through power, doesn't come through violence, doesn't come through politics, doesn't come through wealth, doesn't come through popularity, but it comes from the self emptying, self sacrificing, self giving type of love that is not of this world, it's from another world. And the reason it's important to see God on the cross is because we become what we worship. We become what we worship. That's why in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, So all of us who, had, who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. What Paul is saying is as we worship God, once our veil has been removed, then we can see God for who He really is hanging on the cross that we are transformed more and more into his likeness. Let's connect the dots to the first Sunday. Created to, we are made in the likeness of God to be his image bearers, to be his acorns, to be his representatives in this world. And how do we do that? It's by bending our knee and worshiping God revealed in Jesus. And as we recognize what God is like and we give our lives and we worship him, we actually are transformed by his spirit into his likeness. So if we're worshiping a totem, we're essentially becoming stuck in our own worldliness and we're worshiping ourselves and the cross becomes the means for which God helps us accomplish our own agenda. But if we're worshiping a crucified God, then we will live out this canonic, self-emptying, self-sacrificial love. We will refuse the path of Caiaphas, of Pilate, of Herod, and we'll always see our position, our status, our wealth, whatever we have, as an opportunity to empty ourselves for the sake of others This is canonic love. This is actually, you know, one of the most profound, important teachings of Jesus. Matthew 5, it says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. And God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you, because you are my followers. Be happy about it. (laughs) Jesus, in in what we know as the Beatitudes, these, these sayings of how are you blessed? It's saying when you're truly blessed when you live out the self giving, self sacrificing, canonic love. So I ask you, has the cross for you become a totem? Is your expectation that Jesus died on the cross so that you could have power and influence and wealth and success? Has the cross simply become a means for you to become successful in terms of the definition that our world gives us? A place where we just project our own hopes, dreams, and desires? Or are you becoming God's totem? Are you becoming his canonic, image-bearing, God-reflecting, self-giving, self-sacrificing image-bearer? This was the purpose for which he created you, to be his acone, his image-bearer to participate with him in reconciling the world to himself. And so I end with this scripture. And when I'm done reading the scripture, we're going to show, um, some of you have seen this already, but we're going to show the video of our Mexico team. And the reason that I thought it would be good to actually end this way is, is because it's one, of the, it's one of these moments where we see just a glimpse of what it means to be self-sacrificial, self, self-giving, in inner love. And even if we have bad motives for going to Mexico, you know, there's a girl there we like or, you know, I want to be there instead of hanging out with my parents on spring break. You know, we have all sorts of motives for going, but the, the, the truth and the reality is when you experience this kinotic other kingdom type of experience, you come alive. Something in you wakes up. And why does it wake up? Because that's what you were created for. That's what you were created for. Listen to this. So we have stopped evaluating, this is 2 Corinthians 5, 16, and 6, 1. We have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, though, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone. The new has come. The old way of the world is gone. There's a new world. There's a new kingdom that's breaking in. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering of our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. As God's partners, as God's partners, as his co-workers, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness, and then ignore it. Jesus invites us to follow him, to pick up our cross and follow him, because that is the way in which his kingdom comes. Let's watch the Mexico video. That is awesome. Won't you stand with me? Something in us comes alive when we respond in a canonic way. Those that have been to Mexico know that. Those who have been to one of our Thailand trips or El Salvador trips or, um, you know, are involved in some of our missions to work even in the city here uh, who are doing meals at the mustard seed. You understand this, that when you do something, when you take your time, when you take your money, when you take whatever you have that God's given you and you empty yourself, you end up getting more. This is the way of the kingdom of God. Throughout church history, there's been this tension that people want to, you know, when we talk about this, people say, you know, maybe in reference to the Mexico trip, um, well, just make sure you, you keep the gospel central. And I would like to propose that Jesus, and as we've discovered in the series, does not separate the spiritual and the physical, And that any time we separate the spiritual and the physical, we lose lose what the gospel is all about. That God's reconciling the world to himself, the spiritual and the physical. That he is restoring us spiritually and physically. That it it is a sin to tell somebody who has nothing and you have much that God loves them and you need to give your lives to him so that you can go to heaven someday and then walk away with much. It's sinful. It's also sinful to simply serve people without telling them the source of the canonic love for which is behind your service. That there's a God who is predisposed predisposition towards them, like we talked about last week, that has never turned away from them and is interested in them and wants relation with them so badly, and it's from that place that God changes everything. We need the physical and the spiritual to come together. And so as we close, I just, I want to invite you to reflect, close your eyes and just re- to reflect on what God has given you. What God has given you, your position at work, among friends, wealth, your health, influence. And to recognize that the cross, to pick up a cross and follow Jesus is to recognize that those things were given to you so that you can empty yourself so that people can experience the canonic love of God. And if you respond by thinking, well, you know, I don't have much and, you know, I'm in this season of suffering and, you know, here's the radical part of the cross that it's, it's in that place of suffer- suffering that the love of God is most revealed. And so I would just encourage you, if, you're, if you find yourself in a place of struggle and suffering this morning, instead of viewing that cross as the thing to overcome, view the cross as the way through which God's love is going to be revealed in and through you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are inviting us into a kingdom that is not from this world, but is breaking into this world. Lord, we thank you not only for what you've accomplished on the cross, Lord, but that through the cross, you've shown us how to live. You've shown us how to love. You have revealed to us the one who is all powerful, all knowing, emptying himself, becoming vulnerable so that people would know your canonic love. Lord, I pray that your spirit would transform our hearts this morning. Lord, I pray that we would become so generous and so courageous in our love for other people. Lord, I pray that, pray that our disposition towards others would be your disposition towards us. Lord, I pray that as we step into this, even as this team has done, even this past week, we would become, uh, we, we would experience the life that you give us when we empty ourselves, the irony of the cross. So, Lord, save us from making the cross into a totem, save us from projecting the values of this world and viewing your cross as a way to get that because we recognize, Lord, you're doing something completely different and we bend our knee and we bow to you as our king and we say, we want to follow you. We want to follow the way of the cross. We want to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, would you lead us? And may we be your image bearers in a world that needs to know their God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.